You're listening to Small But Mighty, the podcast of the Small Nonprofits Alliance, the online hub for Australia's small charities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Small But Mighty. Today, we have Roshana Sultan with us, and she is the founder of a small charity called For Pet's Sake. Hello, Roshana. How are you today? Good. Thanks, B. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. For pet's sake, is a member of the Small Nonprofit Alliance um, and we'll be chatting to her today about her journey in establishing her own organisation. So you established For Pet's Sake just over a year ago um, and we will chat about that a little bit later. But as the founder of a small nonprofit, what does being small but mighty mean to you? Interesting question. <laughs> um, I think there are lots of benefits to being a small charity, which which um, I guess is what makes it mighty. Um, being someone relatively new to this kind of actually running a charity and it being quite a small charity means that uh, you get to think out the box, outside the box a lot more. Uh, and it and can be a lot more agile and uh, it's quite, you, you need to be quite energetic as well. Yeah, um, And I think all of those things allows you to, uh, unlike a big charity, all of the things that happen in a little charity, they're all big wins. And yeah. so each of those things makes a huge difference, whereas, you know, getting a $50 donation in some large charities probably not going to be noticed, but a $50 donation to, for pet's sake, that covers half of the shipment for me. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, the, little, the little wins are actually massive wins in a small organisation. Yeah, yeah, true, definitely. Um, now, you've worked at the University of New South Wales in various administration and leadership roles um, and on numerous research programs, primarily in the health space, for about 10 years. How have these roles and skills that you've learned helped in founding your own organisation? Um, I think definitely all of my organisation and uh, time management skills um, has been key to all of the roles that I've had, but also uh, a real key to running a charity on the side. You have to really be able to prioritise your time um, and be pretty organised, um, but also kind of moving into things like more senior kind of leadership roles has also meant that um, I've learned a lot of other skills like being able to negotiate things is probably the key thing. Um, and then I guess there's a bunch of other stuff that I've learned along the way that is not, that was never a primary focus on my role but has definitely helped. So exposure to things like graphic design, um, setting up websites, all of that kind of stuff that I did a little bit of that I then had to really kind of do when you start a charity and it's basically just you, you have to be a jack of all trades. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Thank you. Uh, in addition to the work that you've done, you've also had a long history with volunteering and working with or alongside various nonprofits and community organisations. Can you tell us a little bit about your drive to do this type of work and help the community? Uh, it's really interesting, actually, because it's one of those things that I... I guess I've always done but not really thought about because uh, my mum has always been very heavily involved in charity and so 
that's what kind of got me involved in in charity. So, you know, when I was 10, I used to do the Meals on Wheels deliveries with her and I was the deliverer and she was the driver. Um, (laughs) And then things like the Red Cross telly calling, um, again, is something that my mum used to do and and I could just see the difference it makes to... Uh, someone getting that phone call of every morning and sometimes it's two or three minutes. Sometimes I'm on the phone for 45 minutes just having a chat to these people and sometimes you're the only person that they speak to for the entire day. Mm. Um, and that just something that is um, a really small time and money commitment for me, it's the cost of a phone call, makes a huge difference to someone else's life, particularly when they're isolated yeah. Um, yeah. And then I've always been kind of someone who roots for the underdog. So all of the kind of charities that I've worked for and a lot of my then kind of paid work experience as well has been in areas that um, they're not what a lot of people would, let's say, call sexy populations. So <laughs> Youth Off the Streets deals with... Uh, young people who are at risk or um, of becoming homeless or who are already homeless and, you know, teenagers at the best of times are not always great humans to be around and add that extra element to it and they're not, they're not the cute little kids with cancer kind of thing, I guess. Um, and then Inner City Strays is another charity that I um, do volunteer work with and so we look after um, a lot of the homeless or stray cats in the in the Sydney area, and again, that's a it's quite a polarizing thing. Um, a lot of people really hate cats. A lot of people really hate stray cats and think of them as ferals, even though they're not ferals. Uh, and yeah, for me, the drive has always been. I guess I've always felt that everyone has a responsibility to leave this planet in a better state than what they found it. And and doing charity work has been my way of doing that. And all of the charities that I kind of, and the causes that I've supported are usually the ones that are much more kind of grassroots or dealing with populations, whether it's people or animals, um, that are kind of the more unloved, uh, neglected parts of society. Yeah, Roshana, that's really lovely. I really like, um, you know, you and I have known each other for a few years now, but to hear you talk about um, about your volunteer work and your work with non-profit organisations in such a passionate and lively way, it's really quite lovely to hear you um, to hear you say that. And the inspiration from your mum over the years as a child growing up has obviously been a, a huge influence for you, which is which is really lovely. So thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. I think what's really nice to hear, obviously, if you talking about, you know, you support the underdog or work, working with organisations or populations um, of, of, you know, the not so popular um, segments of society or of our community, probably that led you a little bit to your current organisation that you founded. So for pet's sake um, is an organisation quite grassroots that's really designed to support animal welfare organisations in Fiji. So what was the motivation behind starting an organisation like this and what is your connection with Fiji? Can you tell us a little about that? Yep, so my mum is actually from Fiji Um, and so although I never actually met my maternal grandfather, 
he worked for the SBCA, which um, is kind of uh, similar to the RSPCA here. And so he worked for them for a number of years before I was born. And so uh, taking in stray animals is not something that's that's a foreign concept um, at all in my life. So in your blood, my, it must be in your must be in your blood. <laughs> yeah. So in Fiji, um, you know, I've, I've spent a, a bit of time in Fiji over the years um, because my maternal grandmother was still in Fiji. Um, and then kind of does a kind of six months in Australia, six months in Fiji. So we've, we've still got family back there and we, we go back there as often as we can. And as a child, I guess I never really understood um, or thought too much about why there was always dogs at my grandmother's property um, and they all seemed to be called Banjo uh, <laughs> and that it was never the same dog when I went back. I just didn't think too much about that. Growing up, my parents' house is next door to a creek um, and so stray cats would have kittens under our house. We would feed them and then whoever stayed became our cat. And so, you know, we've always kind of had these animals that have turned up somewhere and we've let them stay. Um, but in Fiji, it wasn't until my last trip, which would have been uh, January year before last, I think it is now, 2019, I think. Yes, mm -hmm. January 2019. Um, whereas I, I went as an adult uh, that was there just for a visit and not because it was someone's wedding or someone's funeral or there was something else going on. Like I was just there to kind of be there. And then I started looking into the dog situation because, again, at my grandmother's house there was um, several dogs there, but she had only arrived there a week before us and so the house had been empty for six months and then I started looking at, well, they can't be her dogs and then it was like, oh, yeah, no one really has dogs, in, like no one really owns dogs in Fiji. They're all community dogs and if they know there's someone living in the house and you put food out, they will come. But they were fiercely protective yeah. Like, like, like you would have, like you would expect your dog to be if someone turns up at your house now. Those dogs have been there for five minutes. You fed them; they are now protectors of you, which yeah. was just a really quite an incredible concept and thing to see. Um, and then when I started kind of looking further into it, I found that they have a huge dog problem in Fiji, which mm -hmm. is kind of a mix of um, cultural and economic issues I would say because Fiji is uh despite what a lot of people might believe it is actually listed as a developing country like it's, mm. it's one of the richer of the poorer nations but it's yeah. still an incredibly poor country yeah um their GDP is something like a tenth of Australia's mm. um and so what you see in the resorts is not real life in Fiji I mm. guess which is a lot, um, a lot about those developing countries across, um, you know, parts of Asia or um, yeah. across the Pacific. It's it's if you go on a holiday and spend only your time in a resort, you're not really, um, you know, getting much insight into the real life in that community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so that's the thing in Fiji that unless you're actually kind of out in the villages and, and, and the townships and stuff, you're not really seeing the the way the people live but also where animals kind of fit in that and because I've always had this passion for animals um and I've had a lot of people kind of say okay but what about 
what about homeless people and why do you care more about animals than homeless people and, and, uh, and, and, you know, children who are suffering and this kind of stuff. But for me, when you look at the kind of, um, I, I guess like the food chain, even if you look at a child who grows up in poverty or grows up in suffering, at some point they become an adult and they have some uh, sense of agency that they can choose to do something about their situation. Choose is probably not the right word, mm. but they they have a greater ability to do something, whereas animals are completely reliant on humans. Like domesticated animals like cats and dogs, they can't really survive on their own without human mm. intervention. And the problems that exist in countries, particularly developing countries, but even here in Australia, more so with cats than dogs, um, is it's the irresponsibility of, of humans who take in these animals who then don't dissect them and that's where the problem is. And so in developing countries they have a very short um, a short view of how to fix the situation. Mm. So in Fiji... Every six months or so when they get enough complaints from a community that uh, there's packs of dogs roaming around or that the people who live in the rubbish tip, who forage for food in the rubbish tip, are fighting against packs of dogs for the same food source, mm. the council will just do a cull of those dogs. So they'll mm. gas them or they'll bait them. Mm. But people don't realise that... Dogs can be pregnant from when they're three months old. They have multiple births usually. Mm. They don't just have one puppy. And they're pregnant not like nine months for humans. They can have four litters in a year. Yeah. And so the problem just keeps growing and growing. And so things like dissexing programs, which uh, are on the uptake in countries like Australia but are still not as good as where they could be, that's the, really the only way to, to kind of turn off the tap of you having this problem. Mm. And getting them to kind of understand that is incredibly challenging for the organisations working in those countries. Um, but just getting general support, getting a general understanding of, you know, um, like they dissect, they dissect animals for free in Fiji. Mm. But just, you know, there's kind of this, strange mentality of like oh no I want them to experience the 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 um the joy of childbirth and motherhood and stuff mm. they're animals yeah. and they don't have like it's actually very traumatizing for for a animal to be pregnant mm. the process of them getting pregnant is not oh I like that male dog and we're going to go on a date and we're going to love each other it's without mm. sounding too graphic it's mm. gang rape. Mm. And so people don't necessarily understand that. And then so the idea of like um, so in Fiji people tend to favour female dogs because they are for whatever reason regarded as more loyal. Yeah. But they don't to sex. And so when she gets pregnant, they boot her out or they wait mm. for her to give birth and then they boot out her puppies. Mm. And so... Just that mentality of animals being property 
And so you're the owner of something rather than the guardian or the custodian of it um, is a hard thing to change, particularly yeah. when you're talking about a country where I want to go in there and tell them they need to change all of this and then they go, okay, no worries, we're happy to do that. How are you going to feed my family? Yeah. yeah. And so it, it, it's a really hard thing and, you know, I came back very emotional about it and very gung-ho that I was going to change their policy and change their government mind and all this kind of stuff and then had to really take a step back and go, really, what can I do? Mm. And I kind of went, okay, well, there are four organisations that are amazing animal welfare organisations working there and I visited a couple of them in the time that I had when I was there and then formed relationships with them uh, and they were like, yes, money. Money is the thing that we're always short of. And yeah. I thought, yep, I can send you money. But if I send you the $100 a month that I can afford, let's say, what difference is that making? Because what do you do with that money? Now, Fiji, like a lot of developing countries, relies heavily on tourism but doesn't have a huge manufacturing industry. Yeah. And the stuff that they manufacture is stuff that they export and stuff that is not necessarily um, high on the economy there. So even something as simple as pet food. Pet food is almost unheard of in Fiji. Mm. And it's not something that's being produced there. Um, and then so I started with these organisations looking at, okay, yep, I can I can try and raise awareness for you. Uh, I can try and get people to donate money. The donating money is a challenging thing when you're asking people to donate money to um, organisations that are overseas that they can't get a tax deduction for. Yeah, um, yeah. But then when I started really drilling down with those organisations of what do you do with that money? So for the most part, they are staffed by volunteers um, or they are staffed by like their veterinary staff are funded through philanthropic funds that have come from the various countries that those people have come from. So the US yeah. or Australia predominantly, um, but everything else is voluntary. And then the money is used to buy supplies. Yeah, And so then I kind of went, okay, so you're taking the money that I'm uh, potentially that I send from Australia to then purchase things from Australia. <laughs> so then you're paying the purchase cost from Australia plus the import cost. If there's mm. some way I can remove the purchase cost, so all you've got to pay is the import cost, does that make it better? Yeah. And so... Yeah. That's what we started doing, or I started doing, looking at, okay, what things can I send them? And, of course, I went with a very first world uh, idea of what things were necessary for animals. What are, what are pet essentials? And, you know, <laughs> I made a couple of mistakes in that. First of all, not really regarded as pets. And so yeah. the idea of pet essentials being appropriate pet food and cat litter and beds and toys, foreign concepts. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I was like, okay, so those things are not essential. Like one of the organisations, I was like, okay, what kind of food do you want me to get? And they're like, oh, if you could get us some rice and dal, that's what the dogs are used to eating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally different. And it's it's really interesting to see, um, you know, and I know we've had a few discussions about um, about your journey previously, but it's it has been interesting to see 
and and you're quite upfront and honest about the transition that you've made in that time around realizing what you think might work is actually not what they need in that particular community. And that's, I think that's one of the really big challenges is working in community development, especially in a in a different country to Australia. Um, but to be honest, even within a, within Australia, community development can be really challenging if you're not taking the community on the journey with you or getting that community buy-in or community insights to help you deliver that work. So it's been really great um, that you've been able to work with them and, you know, make some changes to what you've been doing and how you've been able to make a difference from the ground here in Australia to the animals obviously living in Fiji um, where you're, you know, your family and the communities that you know and love over there. And your passion is um, and enthusiasm for the topic is is so, um, you know, is really um it, it really brings me a lot of joy hearing you talk about about your journey as well. Um, yeah, look, it's it, it, it's that's one of the things that I would say about being a small organisation. The fact that the organisation is uh, in a kind of day to day sense, really me and me making the decisions, having yeah. that agility to be able to go, okay, well, we're going this way. Actually, that's not going to work. This is where we kind of need to be going. Is definitely a plus in being a small organisation without having, you know, kind of a board and governance and and stuff like that that you need to worry about that you can't just, you know, today we're doing this and tomorrow we're going to do this. You can't just shoot that direction. Yeah. Um, But to be able to have have that, sorry, to have that personal um, capability to, to make those changes as well, some people may, you know, be like, oh, no, but I wanted to do this and I'm going to keep doing that. So for you to be personally um, more flexible and open to changing what's needed um, and changing your course a little I think is is really admirable um, as well. And I know in the early days, um, you know, just as like other people as they've founded their own organisations, obviously you followed your heart from the concept like you've been involved in other animal organisations or different volunteering activities for many years you said that it was your most recent visit, which was, you know, two and a half years ago or a bit over that, that you sort of had this realisation that you probably really wanted to do something to to support, um, you know, animals living in Fiji and you had the idea from that, you know, from concept to creation, I guess, around your organisation. I know there was a bit of a process for you in, I guess, the thinking behind, you know, how do I do this. So can you just talk us through a little bit for our listeners, some of the steps or the thought process that you had to take in before you made the decision or to become a registered charity um, rather than something that that you just wanted to sort of do as a hobby, I guess, you know, because a lot of people um, that sort of connect with us are in those really early stages and they're, they're looking for inspiration and for ideas around how to get their idea or their project off the ground. So what were some of the um, the main thought processes for you at that time and the key steps that you took? Um, I, I, so for me, I would say research. Research as much as you possibly can before you kind of take that step because, you you know, I'm a big believer in that if there is an organisation that already exists that's doing that, particularly in the charity space, um, 
you're much better to join forces with them than try and set up something separate and you're basically competing in the same market and that's not helpful to the cause. Um, so I think research, you know, around particularly if you're looking at doing something in a in um, in an area that you're not familiar with, whether that's in Australia or overseas, you need to really understand the issues, understand the players, and understand whether you starting an organisation versus contacting an organisation and saying I want to do some fundraising for you mm-hmm. um, is the thing that you should be doing. Um, So for me, that process was really kind of researching the policies as well as the organisations that I wanted to partner with um, and making sure that uh, the arrangements that I had with those organisations because so some of the organisations in Fiji have been established by Australian or American expats Mm -hmm. um, who are very conscious and cognizant of the idea of white people coming in and telling us how to make the country better, Yeah. Um, which, you know, for all intensive purposes, I've got a white man's mentality and so for me to go into Fiji and say I'm going to fix all of these things for you and this is what you should be doing, exactly the same thing. Yeah. And so being, being conscious of their reputation, particularly when you're looking at working with organisations in another country, mm. um, being kind of aware of their reputation within the community that you're wanting to do work um, and making sure you put kind of risk mitigation into those things where you need to, you know, because one of the organisations is um, probably the most grassroots organisation. It's actually run by Fijians and Fiji Indians and they're all volunteers and they are much more forthcoming in naming and shaming people, <laughs> um, which the other organisations will kind of steer a bit clear of. And so the fact that they are so grassroots and part of the, the you know, all of the workers are part of the community comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah. And so making sure that that um, if you are going to set up an organisation, that your organisation, because your responsibility if you set up an organisation in Australia is for the reputation um, of the organisation in Australia and there are yeah. accountabilities that go with that. Um, yeah. So for me, I have to say right from the outset, I had no intention of setting up a charity. <laughs> I wanted to find a charity that already existed that was working in this area that I could just do some work for. And so there was one organisation which, you know, through my kind of other networks that someone said, oh, look, have you spoken to this lady? Uh, and when I kind of spoke to her, she kind of said to me, go and set up your own thing because I don't, I've set it up because I don't like to work with other people. Uh, <laughs> so that was kind of what kind of pushed me down the path of, okay, well, I'm going to, how, how serious am I about doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, I could just collect stuff and send it to you, but then I could just buy stuff. You know, I could ask my friends to donate things and, and whatnot, Um But then for me, it was things like, okay, but if I want to do actual fundraising and if I want to have a bank account that is not in my name and have it all very transparent, um, Mm. what are the steps in doing that? And so that was the reason that actually went down the the path of actually setting it up as a charity. Yeah. Um, Because I wanted it to be something that was separate from me in the sense that um, it has its own set of accountabilities and can build its own reputation and 
whether it becomes a successful thing that actually becomes bigger than me that it's been set up properly from the outset. Yeah, yeah. That's some really great advice and it's really, um, I think it would be really insightful for our listeners to to understand that sort of thought process that you that you went through. So thanks so much for sharing that that with us, Rosanna. Yeah. So um, I would say like the ATO is very helpful with advice for, for setting up charities as well as the ACNC. Like I had many conversations with them before I, I decided to actually go down that path. Yeah. Um, the other key thing which I uh I think is important if you're thinking of starting a charity and, and registering a business name. So you will need to get an ABN. Yep. When I first did it, I did it as a sole trader because it was just me and I didn't think that was going to be a problem. Uh, yeah. But then to register as a charity, you yeah. as a person, as yeah. a sole trader, can't be a charity. Yeah. So it needs to be set up correctly from the start. ATO and ACNC were very helpful in me transitioning that over. But, you know, if that's a hurdle that I can tell people to try and avoid, absolutely. Yeah, yeah great. Um, that's really helpful advice. And it is so that would have been a big hurdle for you, I guess, at that point. Has there been um, uh, one other hurdle that you could um, share with our listeners that may prevent them in making a similar, not mistake, I don't like to call it a mistake, it's got a lot of negative <laughs> connotations with it, but, you know, is there another hurdle that you faced that you could um, talk about that you overcame during the last year or so? Yeah, so I would say um, it's definitely thinking about um, what your organisation is going to do Yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, is your key going to be fundraising and is that fundraising specifically for projects that you're going to run or are you going to do you, do you want to fundraise and then partner with an organization to support things that they're running um the biggest hurdle I think for me because the organization is a registered charity but it's not eligible for DGR status mm-hmm. um I had to really think about okay well from a financial perspective what money do I need and what do I actually need the money for? Mm. And so the organisation, like I I, um, I, had to really look into, um, you know, my pet essentials and then work out that really they're not essentials in a developing country. <laughs> essentials in a developing country are things like medical supplies yeah. for an animal organisation. Yeah. Uh, and so the benefit I had of like I, I had these very long protracted negotiations with the uh, Customs and Revenue Service in Fiji, who I have to say were incredibly generous with their time and incredibly helpful to me as I just kept kind of bulldozing them with, what about this? What about that? Can I do this? Can I do that? And discovered that, you know, the duties on something that I would call pet essential, like pet food, for example, Mm. there are massive duties that have to be paid on that. Medical Mm. supplies? duty free. Mm. They pay the VAT, but they pay no duty. Uh, the other great thing about the, the medical supplies is that, and this is something that kind of evolved over time and and definitely working in medical, the medical area of uh, UNSW helped me a lot uh, in building the connections and actually kind of getting to the point where exclusively what we send now is expired medical supplies. Mm. And um, building that network has helped. Um, but then, you know, so the only cost that I'm really up for is the cost of freight. Yeah. 
Um, and so the, the challenge with that was trying to, to find a way of getting the freight cost to be uh, as low as possible but actually coming up with the money for that. And so I think if, you, if you're thinking about doing like financial fundraising in some way, Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not it's just to kind of cover some costs of the organisation or that's your primary goal, you need to think about how uh, difficult it is to get people to donate money when there are so many other causes out there. Um, so thing, looking at things like what could I sell, what kind of crowdfunding arrangement could I do, what other ways of generating income um, could I find that people would be happy to participate in um, and so for me pre-COVID that was selling fundraising chocolates and so you know I just I linked up with Cadbury's and started selling their fundraising chocolates just throughout the university anywhere there was a reception there was a box of my chocolates people didn't necessarily know or care what they were for they just knew at three o'clock I didn't have to leave the building I could go to reception yeah and get that afternoon sugar hit (laughs) yeah so so COVID has had a severe impact in that sense um it's also been a big hurdle because I found a freight company um that was willing to to send or everything air freight for a really, really cheap per kilo price, so it was $1.80 per kilo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and things like gauze and bandages weigh next to nothing. So I was saying, you know, I could pack a box with a thousand of them and it'll cost me $1.80 essentially. Mm. Yeah. Air freight stopped. And so they only do sea freight and that cost me seven times as much. And takes so a lot longer, I would assume. Was the challenge? Mm. Uh, and so I've had to be a bit more creative now that, you know, people have, have been out of offices for so long and couldn't sell the chocolates. What else, how else could I kind of make the money? Mm. And so now shop back is kind of the way that I make most of the, the money to cover the freight. So it's fantastic because it it's something that has excelled in the, in the post-COVID world or the current COVID world because more people are online shopping yeah. so more organisations are connected to, to shop back um, and you pay the same price and shop back pays whatever the, the amount is, the agreed amount that they're giving back. So rather than people taking that as a cash back for themselves, um, I get them to put it into the account for, for pet's sake. Yeah. So they're not concerned about the donation receipt because it's not really costing not really you buying yeah. something and, and it's just giving it away for free kind of thing. So that's, yeah. yeah, you just, you have to be clear about what it is your organisation's going to do um, and clear about how sustainable that's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think they're two really important words for people, Um you know, at all stages of a charity's life, but especially in those early days, is having the clarity around the mission and your purpose and why you do what you do because you need to then transition that into uh, explaining to people and inspiring people to give to your organisation. So if you're not clear on your purpose, how can you inspire someone to support that financially or by volunteering or, you know, in-kind donations like it is in your case um, you know, from some of the businesses that are providing out-of-date medicines or, you know, 
um, things like that for the animals. Um, and that second part of it is, um, so is the clarity uh, is the first part and the sustainability I think is really key. And um, that's something that all organisations at all stages of their um, lifespan need to consider, but especially in the early days, you need to work out ways that you can make your organisation as sustainable as possible so that you've got better chance of it surviving into the mid to long term if that's what you choose to do with your organisation. Um, Roshanna, it's been so lovely speaking with you today. Um, we've, um, yeah, like I said earlier, um, it's been really great seeing your journey over the past um, year or two, but I really thank you for your time today. You've been able to be so open and honest and share your journey. And so thank you so Thanks much for your much. time. No worries. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. And, and you know, your assistance, I don't think I would have even gone down this path had I not been able to kind of bounce ideas off you and look at the resources on the Facebook and, and the web page and stuff uh, and a lot of the webinars that I've done as well. All of that stuff has been incredibly helpful because, you know, there's there's lots of stuff, the social media stuff, I wouldn't have had a clue about had I not done the Facebook Masterclass. So that's one thing that I would highly recommend people do. Yeah, that's great. It's so great to hear that, um, you know, that being a member of the Small Nonprofit Alliance has really helped you in these um, early days of your organisation. And hopefully um, it, we can, you know, continue to do so and, and um, you can benefit from all the resources that we that we do have available for our members. So thanks once again and thanks everyone um, for listening. Have a great day. Thanks, everyone.